0: Take a Bible, if you will, and open with me again to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The preaching of God is a continuation of our corporate worship of God. And of course, 1 Corinthians 1 continues in our sermon series through this epistle as well. Our focus will be beginning in verse 26 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Every good argument, every good sermon has a point of application. A place where the writer or the speaker brings his argument home and applies it personally to the recipient. And that's what we see here in this section by the Apostle Paul. He's addressing the division in the church, if you'll remember. And this division is the source of every other sin and problem in Corinth. And he's pinpointed that the division is the result of worldly wisdom infiltrating the church. Human evaluations of of what is good and beautiful and true. Of what is eloquent. What is necessary. What is is important. He's made the point that you've gotten away from the fundamentals. You've moved beyond the central message of Christ and Him crucified because you think there's bigger and better things found in the the, the eyes of the world. And so his message continually has been Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified. And, And now, he brings that home. He said, the message of the cross overthrows the wisdom of the world. Well, now take a look at yourself. Don't you see that you two are living proof that God does not operate on the value system of the world? So this passage is both an illustration and an application of his entire argument here in chapter 1. So with this then, let's hear what he says. Ultimately, the Apostle Paul guided and inspired and kept from error by the Holy Spirit of God Thus, this is the Word of God. The Lord speaks in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. Let's listen with faith. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Let's pray again. Father, we pray, we stop, we ask, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to boast only in the Lord. We pray that you would bring us low, that you may be brought high, that we may decrease, that you may increase. We pray for more of that wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that is found in Christ. Lord, This is what we seek right now. This is the longing of our hearts. This is what we ask for as we approach this message. We ask for it with one voice as your people. Grant us wisdom from on high that is found in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Anytime that there is rivalry or division or faction within the local church, I think one of the very... Most fundamental ways that we can address it is to simply ask the question: why are you here today? Why are you here? I don't really mean why are you in this building at the moment, ultimately, but why are you part of the church of God? Why are you here to worship? Why are you a Christian? Why are you not an atheist? Why are you not a Jew or a Muslim? Or a Mormon? Why are you not agnostic? Why are you not, as is so in vogue in our day, secular? Not anything in particular. Why are you not just spiritual? Try to love people. Do the right thing. Why are you here to worship God? It's a beautiful day. You could be out hiking. You could be at some bougie restaurant downtown eating brunch. You could just sleep in today. Why, why, were, why are you not out playing golf or hanging with your friends? Why are you here to worship God? Why are you a believer? Why are you part of His body? If you think about that in your own respect, in your own life, there's probably many answers you could give to this, right? Maybe you're a Christian because you were raised in a Christian home and that's where you first heard the gospel. Maybe that's why you're not a Jew or an atheist. Maybe you're a Christian because somebody invited you to church and you heard the gospel. Maybe, maybe you're a Christian because life just started falling apart and it was so painful that, that you cried out to God for help and He led you to the Scriptures. He led you to Jesus Christ and, and you were saved. I mean, all of those things might be true, but you know that when the Scriptures answer this question, the Scriptures point back to something that's far more fundamental and far more ultimate. If you are a Christian and you're here today to worship God, and if you're a part of the body of Christ, ultimately it's because God chose you. And God choosing you came long before, and it extends long after, any other reason you might give for why you're here. James 1.18 Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13 God from the beginning chose you for salvation. Ephesians 1.4 He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love He predestined us through Jesus Christ. Predestined means to predestine. Your destiny is determined pre ahead of time. 1 John 4.19 We love because He first loved us. If you're a Christian, if you have been brought to faith, if you have been brought into the church, the body of Christ, it is because God has loved you, and God has chosen you, and God has brought you here, not only today in His providence, but He's brought you to here in His eternal plan if you are part of the body of Christ. You're here as an outworking of God's eternal plan for His own glory. Of course, as soon as we acknowledge this, though, and we think, okay, God's love for us, God's choice for us precedes every other uh, reason why we we chose and, and love Him, aren't we inclined to always ask the question then, well, why did He choose me? That's kind of our human way of thinking. On what basis did God make His choice for me? Paul wants him to think about that because you're rich because you're wise because you're influential you have good impact on other people because your parents are Christians because you're a good person because he knew that you would choose him because he saw well this is going to be a really valuable asset in my plan in my church no no Again, the Scriptures answer this clearly and emphatically. Ephesians 2.8-9 By grace you have been saved through faith. And that grace and that faith is not of ourselves, but is the gift of God so that no one can boast. If you answered yes to any of those previous questions, you have something to boast in. But if you are here simply because the grace and mercy of God you can only boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite the fact that some people find this offensive, despite the fact that some people chalk this up as an unsolvable mystery, well, we don't know where sovereignty and free will meet, so we just shouldn't say anything about it. Despite the fact how other people just don't care and say, well, we should just focus on Jesus. Today, I want you to see just how important And just how practical the sovereignty of God in salvation is in the local church. The Scriptures don't teach us that God is sovereign simply to wow us or to give us something to debate. God's sovereignty is revealed first and foremost as a comfort to you. He who began a good work is going to complete it. This isn't your idea, the Christian life. It's His plan, so you can trust Him. But secondarily, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is the only thing that overthrows and confounds the wisdom of this world which strikes at the core issue of every faction and division in the local church. It's only in the soil of God's sovereignty are the seeds of humility truly nourished so that they might sprout. If you are here today simply because of God's sovereign, unmerited grace, then there is no room for boasting. There is no room for division. There is no room for personal rivalries. Because rather than boasting in our own wisdom, and our own gifts, and our own achievement, and our own rhetoric, the message of the cross shouts to us God's undeserved, unmerited favor. Because... It's only the cross and how God has dealt with us in Christ that serves as the adequate and sure foundation for how we then are to treat one another in the church. That's the source of unity and love within the local church and that's what we see in this passage today. Well, how is this elaborated on? How, is this, how do we see this in this passage? Uh, I want to make three points today. Three things. We see God's uncommon choice, His unlikely plan, and His unmerited gift. Uncommon choice, unlikely plan, unmerited gift. First, Paul highlights God's uncommon choice here in verse 26. Look at it again. For consider your calling, brother. Brothers, not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Again, as I said a moment ago, Paul's turning to make personal application here of everything he said so far in chapter 1. And he has said that the cross stands in direct contradiction to human demands and expectations for what is true and good and beautiful. Remember, Jews, Jews seek a sign. Show me that your religion can give me a good personal experience before I believe your message. Greeks seek wisdom. Prove to me that your Christianity works that it fixes my life, that it's noble, that it's really practical, that it's honorable, that it makes things better for me here and now. But despite this being demanded by everyone and every class in the world in some way or another, in contrast to this demand, in contrast to these expectations, the message of the cross contradicts it and overthrows those things. And yet, it's only the message of the cross that is the power of God and his salvation. That's been his point. And so here in verse 26, now he says, okay, that's my argument, but now look at yourself. Take a hard look at at who you are. Take a hard look at who makes up the church there in Corinth. Take a hard look at the circumstances in which God called you. Don't you see in your very own lives and personal experience that God uses what is foolish in the eyes of the world to accomplish His purposes? Important to note here is that this is the fifth time in this opening chapter that Paul has mentioned God's call. Anytime the Scriptures repeat something in close proximity is to be in bold, underlined with Maybe flashing lights around it. It's important. We got to pay careful attention anytime something is repeated. Fifth time he's mentioned calling. It's a linchpin to his entire argument. God's called you to be holy. That's how he opened. God's called you to the fellowship of his son. God's called you uh, through the power and wisdom of the preaching of Christ crucified. And now here he says, Consider this calling. God has called you. Why? How? Don't you see that you're a Christian because God's called you? Don't you see that you're only part of this church because God has called you? And don't you see that God's calling isn't, isn't an invitation simply or just a request, but it's more of a summoning. It's like, it's like Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. God's calling, Paul is saying, is what illustrates his wisdom and power through the preached gospel. And it's God's calling that also leaves no room for boasting and rivalries in these silly dissensions and favoritism that you have in the church. His point is that God's action and calling is not based upon you being the world's most beautiful and successful people. So what he says very plainly here the manner in which god called you was not because you were wise according to worldly standards you're not a christian because you're wiser or smarter than your unbelieving neighbor the worldly standards of wisdom which might be summarized as self-reliance as popular opinion as what works has good effects as leads you to be internally the happiest Those things, worldly worldly wisdom, play absolutely no role in your conversion to Christ. Furthermore, God's calling was not because you were powerful either. You weren't a social influencer. And that's why God, you know, kind of drafted you into the team. (laughs) You weren't someone with social or political clout. Most of you, he's saying. Not many of you. Had any social or political clout or influence. Consider as well that not many of you are of noble birth. It's not you're not a Christian because you came from a powerful family line or a noble name or a royal blood. Consider your calling, brethren. Consider these things. This a way in which Paul is saying God's calling of you wasn't based upon anything that this world values as important. Of course, if you know your Bible, you know that God often delights to work this way. Remember the choosing of David? Right? And Jesse parades all of the strong and noble and impressive brothers that he has knowing that God's going to select this king from his line. And he even forgets to mention David. David's not even there. He's out shepherding sheep. And he was ruddy, he's described. Just just small and simple. And God chose David, God chose the apostles. Matthew was a tax collector, hated. Right? They're simple fishermen, uneducated. God delights to work this way. Remember Matthew 11. Jesus prays. He prays to the Father. And He says, Lord, I thank You that You have hidden the Gospel from the wise and understanding of this world. But You've revealed it to babes. God is not elitist in His choosing and His calling. God delights to save those whom the world counts as nothing. Now, of course... Don't misunderstand Paul here. He isn't saying that, you know, the whole church is made up entirely of losers, uh, for lack of a better term. He says not many of you. We know, for example, that the first convert in Corinth was a ruler of a synagogue. Uh, Probably not a rich man, but certainly a man with influence. We read later in chapter 7, though, that there were also slaves who were members of the church. They were the lowest of the low. Paul's point is not that God shows preference for anyone or even the lowly. You can't boast in the fact that well, I'm closer to God because I'm lowly and the world thinks nothing of me. Don't glory in that. No, the point is that the cross turns upside down all of these human evaluations and distinctions altogether. The cross cuts through all social and racial and intellectual and merit-based distinctions. God takes the powerful and the weak. He takes the privileged and the oppressed. And He sets them all on equal ground at the foot of the cross. Because human evaluations of merit and worth and wisdom and power and influence mean nothing in His plan. So the clear implication here is that grace not only explains why you're a Christian, But grace also serves, ought to serve, to continually humble you and unify you in the church as well. So, brethren, I just ask, have you come to see and live in the light of this truth? That the only difference between you and your non-Christian neighbor is God's grace that you're not here because you have some special gift that God just can't live without. That there is absolutely no hierarchy or no room for hierarchy in God's economy, in the church. Because it all depends upon grace. The church that doesn't see this is a church that is ripe for division and sin and error. But we need to go on because... Paul continues to develop this before it all comes into focus. Secondly, after God's uncommon choice, we see God's unlikely plan. God's unlikely plan. Uh, Look at verse 27 and 29. We see, of course, in 26 that not many were this and this. Well, God positively then chose what is foolish in the world, as shame the wise. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that that are. Again, we have a repetition. Don't miss it. A repetition in very close proximity. Which is actually rare in Greek. You might think that, okay, this is a translation. Maybe it helps us to understand it. No, it's there in the Greek, and and it's a rare construction. God chose, God chose, God chose. Normally, you don't need to repeat yourself three times like that. You could say, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the strong. What is weak in the world to shame... uh, uh, uh." Let me repeat that. You could say, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise... What is weak in the world is shame the strong. And what is low and despised in the world. And you can still make your point. But if you want to be emphatic, you add the God choosing under each statement. God chose, God chose, God chose. He wants them to make no mistake about the fact that they are believers and that they are in the church because God chose Of course, there's a larger point to this though. We just saw that it's not the foolish, the weak, and the low, the despised that are more favorable towards God. Rather, the point just is that the world's value systems don't come into play in the plan of God. And that's what Paul wants to kind of emphasize here. He's emphasizing this unlikely plan. He's drawing our attention to this unlikely plan, as overall plan in redemption. There is a chasm between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, and those two never cross. And how do we know this? We know this because God, uh, Paul says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. It's not that all Christians are fools. It's rather that the gospel contradicts and overthrows what the world counts as wisdom. And God delights taking what the world sees as foolish and using it to accomplish His plan. God chose what is weak. It's not that every Christian is weak. But God delights in taking the lowly, those of no power, no special giftedness, no influence, to shame those who trust in might and influence popularity, riches, and honor. God delights in taking the weak of the world instead of those who are strong in and of themselves, the self-sufficient in and of themselves. He loves to take the weak to shame those who trust in themselves. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. It's interesting the tense changes here. Things that are not not just people now, it's things. It's kind of the subtle implication being that these people are so overlooked that the world counts them as things. They're dehumanized. They're so unimportant. It's as if if they don't even exist to the world altogether. God takes the things that are not. What does He take these for? What's His purpose? To bring to nothing to make it effective, to entirely overthrow the things that are, the things that this world loves and values and esteems. Brethren, these verses highlight the end time or eschatological plan of God. God's sovereignty in salvation is a purposeful part of His plan to conquer and overthrow all evil and all His enemies and all our enemies. In fact, that's why I often say here that each time the Gospel is preached, final judgment is taking place. Right here, on Sunday morning. Every time the Gospel is preached, God's victory plan is set in motion. And every time it's preached, God through the preached gospel, is in the process of overthrowing wisdom and sin and the pomp of this world. Every soul that is saved by the preaching of the gospel and every Christian who is sanctified by the preaching of the gospel is a furthering of the end time plan to restore and renew all things. It's brought into the present and made right now. Corinthians had forgotten this. They had begun to turn back to the old creation, to the world's values and the world's way of thinking. That's why they were boasting in men. I am of Apollos. I am of Paul. I follow this guy. I don't follow that guy. I listen to this preaching. I don't listen to that preaching. I love this circle of friends. I don't like this circle of friends within the church. And they were boasting in their gifts. Well, I can prophesy. You can't. I'm definitely more important. Yeah. I can speak in tongues and you can't. Well, God really needs me. God really needs this. This is what the church needs. The answer, Paul gives, you've forgotten God's sovereignty. You're acting as if you're so special. You're so vain. You probably think the gospel is about you. It's not. It's not about you. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> They've forgotten grace. They've forgotten grace, grace, marvelous grace. They've forgotten God's plan in his sovereignty is to overthrow, overthrow this world's wisdom and overthrow everything evil. You know that's one reason why the doctrine of election and predestination is so controversial. It is, nothing infuriates sinful man more than that. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Chosen by God, I love how he talks about this. We're Americans, right? Free, land of the free. I cling to to my rights. We serve no king. We serve no sovereign. Nothing offends us as humans, as sinful humans, more than God on His throne that we're not in charge you're not in charge of your internal destiny. Salvation is according to God's purpose of election. Romans 9, 11. And that's how it overthrows wisdom. Because the world would never think of something like that. Oh, Well, that's not fair. That's not just. Hey, this person, they're going to have to earn that for themselves. You know, the parable of, of the day laborers, right? Hey, I've I've worked all day and you're paying this guy who worked half an hour the same wage that you paid me. That's not fair. That overthrows the world's wisdom. God's sovereignty and salvation overthrows the world's wisdom. But why has he done this? Why does he care about overthrowing the world's wisdom? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God deliberately chose things that the world and people see as foolish. Not a really good church growth plan, is it? He deliberately chose those things so that He could forever remove from every human being every possible ground of merit or boasting in the presence of God. Remember in John 6 when Jesus is talking to the crowds, He feeds them, right? Right? And then he says, You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you have no life in you. And, you know, could you think of anything more offensive to a Jew with their dietary laws? And the crowds leave. And the disciples are looking around like, Wait, I thought you wanted people to come to you. I thought you wanted to build your kingdom. I thought you were the Messiah. And they say, Jesus, these things are hard to accept. What does Jesus say? Well, do you want to go away too? And they say, no, you have the words of eternal life. And what does Jesus say? You're here because I chose you. It's the next thing he says. It's the final things he says in that that story. You're here and you're staying because I chose you. Don't forget that. Brethren, God's plan of salvation is to destroy every means and manner of boasting that that anything that we can take pride in, anything that we can take glory in, and, and really most fundamentally in this passage, to boast means to put confidence in. To trust. And so it brings us back to this ultimate question, who do you trust to save you? Who do you look to for wisdom? Who do you rely upon for power? If in any respect, it's a human being, whether you or somebody else, I can only trust myself. I can only believe in myself. I can only do it myself. If that's that's your answer, you're among those who are perishing. And that's why the the gospel is such a scandal to the unbeliever. That's why it's so foolish to, to the world. The flesh cannot accept, apart from the indwelling Spirit of God, this message that removes every ground of boasting so that there's nothing in you. You got no confidence in yourself. You got no hope. You got no strength. You got no power. You got no wisdom. You got no worth, ultimately, in your flesh. And we hate that in our sin. But the gospel comes to trample and bring down that self-sufficiency and pride so that God might be exalted for who He is. And this is a message that the church in Corinth needed to hear. This is a message that we need to hear as well. And this is a message that is continually on the forefront of Christ and Him crucified. It took the death of the Son of God to save you. this is the message we need because as John Calvin put it here, whoever glories in himself, trusts in himself, relies upon himself, whoever glories in himself, glories against God. When this infiltrates the church, we glory against God. And we bite and devour and destroy one another. That's what was happening in Corinth. And that's why... They needed to return to the cross and the wisdom and the power that comes through Christ and Him crucified to pave the way for that humility and grace and love in their relationship to one another. Well, third and finally, this leads to our final consideration. I say this often, but it's definitely true here. It all comes together in these last two verses. Un- uncommon choice, unlikely plan, now unmerited gift. God's unmerited gift. If you've had trouble following up to this point, don't miss this. This is two of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. It's immensely helpful. It's immensely practical. It's particularly beautiful. Paul's focused on the negative, but now he turns. Now he turns to the positive. He reverses and he talks about this unspeakable blessing that we have. Verse 30 and 31. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We might might think, well, does God's sovereignty trample us? Does it make us out to be nothing? Does it leave us poor? and lowly, and despised? Does it make us robots? Are we just slaves who should never, you know, never have any sort of joy, never get off of our knees of submission? Does this scream the love and grace of God here? God crowns us. He exalts us. He beautifies us. In the Gospel, He doesn't just save the weak and lowly, He turns them into the mighty and the glorious. Not in and of ourselves, but because we're united to Christ. Because we're partakers of the divine nature. Notice again, God's sovereignty comes out yet again. It's inescapable from this passage. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Because I chose to follow Jesus? Because I earned or deserved it? Because I was wiser or better? Because I am worth it? Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of Him, though, if you think about just the language of of Him, we're talking about a person. This is personal language. This isn't abstract. It's not arbitrary. Because of a loving being who delighted in you, who loved you, who chose you, who rescued you, who put his arms around you. Because of a person, you are in Christ. You're not a clog in the machine. Right? You're not a line of code in His his grand plan of redemption. This is a person who loves you. What does it mean to be in Christ? Because of Him, you are in Christ. Because of this person, you are in Christ. Of course, in Christ speaks of our union with Him. Union with Christ. It's... The most common way that the New Testament speaks of Christians, we use the term Christian. So-and-so's a Christian, so-and-so's a Christian. The New Testament says so-and-so's in Christ, so-and-so's in Christ. It's the most common designation of a Christian because in Christ means we've been transferred from being in Adam, the old man, flesh, sin, decay, destruction, turmoil, sorrow, death. And now we are under the new family, under the new man, the the, the man who's been raised, the end-time eschatological man, the new creation, the firstborn of new creation, we too being a new creation in Him. Being in Christ means that we're united as an organic part of His body. Of course, it's like a marriage. It's even more intimate than a marriage. Marriage, you know, uh, two become one, one household, one name. One flesh? Well, in the same way, there's a joining of the believer with the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that He is, we are. Everything that He earned is ours. Everything that He accomplished or will accomplish is ours as well. It's true of us as an individual and it's true of us as a community to be in Christ because we together share in the body of Christ. We share in the union of His members. What is the result of being in Christ? Well, Paul highlights here four things that flow from this. Four gifts, four manifestations, four ramifications of being in Christ. Because of Him, we are united with Christ. And being united in Christ, we share in these gifts. He became to us wisdom. The world counts wisdom as maybe cleverness. The skill to get ahead, how to become influential or rich or successful or popular. But the scriptures say you know what wisdom is? To know God. That's it. To know God. It's not just that Christ makes us wise according to this world. It's that our wisdom, and it's not so that, you know, now we become wise in Christ and so we can get ahead now. No, this is not our wisdom. It is His wisdom that we are given as a gift. And that's to know God, our Creator. And the light of the world that drives out sin and darkness. Christ is our righteousness as well. This is forensic. This is legal. This is declarative righteousness. You're not righteous, just like you're not wise. It is His that is given to you as a gift received by faith. Martin Luther said here, there is nothing whatever in us that is righteous. It is entirely outside of us in Christ. And yet it becomes truly ours, through His gift and grace. It, this righteousness becomes our very own as though we ourselves achieved it and earned it. Christ is also our sanctification. Righteousness speaks to the courtroom of God's justice. Sanctification here speaks to purity from defilement. We have been made pure and thus being made pure we have been brought near and set apart as holy unto Him. Sanctified. Sanctified. It's not because you are pure in and of yourself. It's because Christ is, and you are in His body. And Christ is our redemption. Redemption recalls Exodus, of course. Slaves in Egypt. And then God, unilaterally, without any help of anyone, delivered them from the hand of Egypt through the blood of the Lamb to become His chosen special possession. To the Gentile, they wouldn't maybe think of the Exodus, but they they certainly know the slave market. And to know that we, by nature, are enslaved to sin, Satan, and the world. We are in bondage to such things. We are humiliated and shamed by such things. But the Master came and He paid a price for us. The blood of the Lamb. Not just to set you free, but to unite you to a new Master. To serve Him. A service that will ultimately result in the redemption of our bodies at the last day. So brethren, don't you see God's choice, God's plan, God's gift. Whether we are talking about why you are a Christian in your conversion. Whether we're talking about God's overall plan of redemption. Or whether we're talking about your particular gift and grace as a Christian and how it functions in this church. It all comes back to the free and unmerited and undeserved, imputed grace and mercy of God that He gives us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Received only by faith. And this is contrary and even overthrows the values of this world. And brethren, if it hasn't been clear enough, these things are only found in Jesus Christ alone and in union with Him. There is no wisdom apart from Christ. There is no goodness apart from Christ. There is no redemption apart from Christ. You cannot enjoy any of these things apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Martin Luther, again here, brings it home. And he says, you comprehend this fully when you realize... That all of your wisdom is damnable stupidity. All of your righteousness is damnable righteousness. All of your purity is damnable impurity. All of your redemption is miserable damnation. And when you thus discover that before God and all creatures, you are actually a fool, a sinner, an unclean and condemned person, And when you show not only with words, but also with all your heart and your deeds that you are left with no other comfort and salvation than the fact that Christ is given to you by God and that you believe in Him and partake of Him, whose righteousness alone can preserve you as you appeal to it and rely on it, only then can you boast only in the Lord. Brethren, the point is this, the vertical relationship of how God has dealt with us in Christ at the cross is the ground and basis for how we are to treat one another on the horizontal plane of relationships within the local church. And so to you as well as you hear this voice, this, is a call, uh, this passage, this is a call for you to think about your conversion To think about who you were before Christ. To think about the plan of God and where you fit into it. To think about your service and place in the church. And to think about that, not to look at yourself, but to use that as a reminder to turn and fix your eyes upward. To look to the Lord Jesus Christ to see how He has taken what is foolish and weak and nothing in the eyes of the world Yet he has crowned you and made you a kingdom of priests to God. How he has plucked you out of the fire. He's chosen you out of the world. He's redeemed you from the bondage of slavery. So now that you are a child and an heir. If you truly see that, how could you not be humbled? If you truly see this, how could you not long and thirst more and more for Christ and Him crucified? If you see this, how can you not be enamored with His love? If you see this, how can you then have faction or division with your neighbor, particularly your neighbor in the body of Christ? This is the only basis for comfort through life storms. This is the only basis for unity in Christ's church. And Paul, Apostle Paul with broad strokes and with bold letters says, "Christ." and Him crucified. See it, and glory in Him. This is the root of everything that you need. Brethren, I pray today that the Lord would give us grace to hear and receive that as well. Amen.